Hello, welcome back. My name is Dr. Christopher Gennari. This is the Great Big History Podcast. In this episode, we do Africa, Eastern and Western Africa, from the ancient world to 1500. The important story about Africa is that its history gets lost. And that's to do with some Westernism, that has to do with colonialism, that has to do with racism. But African civilization is as old as anywhere else. In fact, in East Africa, it's as old as Egypt. And we start with the Kingdom of Kush. Kush is going to develop with Egypt. Uh, it's going to provide resources to the pharaohs. And so very early on, we have um, the development of kings, of bureaucracies, with kings come armies and kingdoms. And we have a trade relationship. And with that trade relationship comes a cultural relationship and connection with Egypt, with ancient Egypt. So Kush is located on the Nile River uh, from the as far north as the first, but usually the second cataract, second to the third cataract, sometimes lower. Um, there will be many different kingdoms that will take up this area. It is conquered by New Kingdom Egypt as part of the New Kingdom's desire to kick out the Hiskos and then protect itself from enemies. It Pharaohs, including King Tut, will come south. They'll go up the river. Um, they'll essentially colonize uh, the land between the first and the second cataract, creating what is more or less the modern, modern boundary of Egypt. And they will head into Africa, thus taking over these African kingdoms. With that comes increased trade, increased contact, increased cultural assimilation between the two cultures. After the Bronze Age collapse and the collapse of New Kingdom Egypt, the kings of Kush even took over uh, Egypt and ruled as pharaohs. The 25th dynasty in 945 is a uh, African dynasty. It's accepted as a pharaonic dynasty. It is a conquering dynasty, but it is a um, accepted Egyptian. Unlike the Hiskos, the the Kushite kings were more accepted. They will get kicked out by um, the Assyrians, and the Assyrians will get destroyed and then replaced by the Persians in Egypt. But what this does is show that there's this long connection through the Nile between what we would call Sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa and Egypt. In the Roman era, we have Nubia, Mero, and Ethiopia. All of these will be connected to the Roman world. Now, they're at the end of the highway, but there is transmission both 
into the Mediterranean world and from the Mediterranean world. Christianity will come up the rivers to Africa, while mercenaries from the earliest times will flow down. Resources, trade continues. And so it is considered part of the Roman world. The Romans don't go there, the Romans don't conquer it, but it is within the Roman cultural orbit. The Islamic conquest in the 600s of North Africa cut off Eastern Africa from the Christian, Mediterranean, European, Roman world. The Red Sea coast tied East Africa to Arabia. And those connections go as far back as people lived on those two sides of the Red Sea. But with the coming of Islam in Arabia, the unification of the uh, Arabian Peninsula under Muhammad and under Islam, Islam will spread to East Africa. Now, the Ethiopian highlands remained Christian, but the rest of the coast will become Islamic. And in fact, Islam will become the major religious, political, and economic force in Eastern Africa. There will be continued trade, especially mineral wealth, which will flow from East Africa across the Red Sea to Arabia or through Egypt to the Middle East. There will, of course, also be a large-scale slavery. Some 10 million people will be taken over um, more than a, a millennium, more than a thousand years, will be sold into slavery from by African slave holders and will be sold on the slave markets in East Africa and be sent to labor in the Middle East. They will also have mercenaries, especially infantry, in order to offset Arab cavalry, which was excellent and very good. The problem is, if you're going to fight an infantry battle, you, cavalry doesn't do so well. And so you need to have infantry. And African foot soldiers were excellent. And so um, African infantry continues to uh, export men, export labor, to these larger empires on its, on its periphery. Uh, first it was the Romans, first it was the Egyptians, really, then it was the Romans, then it was the Arabs. And so if we take a look at the map, we can see just how important and widespread Islam is in Africa. It goes along the east coast of what is modern-day Somalia and Tanzania, but also all the way across the Sahara, North Africa, Egypt, Libya, Algeria, that are considered uh, the Arab lands. They're, North Africa is considered different than Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, culturally, linguistically, uh, racially. But also, the, on the other side of the Sahara, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Chad, Sudan. All of these areas 
northern Nigeria. All of these are going to be connected to is Islamic culture, Islamic knowledge, Islamic trade. So they are part of a much larger Islamic world, not an Arab world, though the Arabs are going to be very important in the Islamic world. They are connected to a much larger Islamic world going through Iran and Persia to India, all the way into Central, Central Asia. So what about West Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa and Central Sub-Saharan Africa? Well, we see similar patterns. The connections are going to be through trade. And likewise, it's going to be trade from Africa, from Sub-Saharan Africa to trade to North Africa, then through them to Europe. Uh, The same routes are taken today by migrants, by immigrants, by people wanting to work in Europe. They are following some of the same same routes as they did back then. Uh, The major trade here is um, gold. They continue to sell mineral wealth. Africa has lots of mineral wealth. And what they traded it for was salt. Which they needed to preserve food. Which they needed to for nutrients. You need salt for your body to work. Um, and so they traded gold for salt. Increasingly, they also are going to sell off mercenaries. Uh, the North African kingdoms will be able to hire mercenaries, especially Nubian cavalry. Nubian cavalry was famous. Now, I know we talked about Anubia in East Africa. The Romans also had Anubia in West Africa. And so Nubian cavalry, especially for like the Roman armies, were incredibly important. They were excellent horsemen. Now, you can already see that there's a difference between East Africa and West Africa. East Africa has more mercenary armies, and not mercenary armies, infantry armies, while West Africa has more cavalry-based armies. The Islamic connection is going to replace the European-slash-Roman connection around 700 AD, especially to Spain. The conquest of Spain... um, by the Arabs and the coming of a separate caliphate there is going to be huge because that becomes the the end point of trade in East in West Africa. West Africa is going to be directed not to Algeria, not to Tunisia, but to Spain. Spain is West Africa's Egypt, whereas all routes in East Africa really went to Egypt first. Later on, they'll cross the sea and go to Arabia. But in West Africa, they go to Spain. That's the major economic connection. So, our African empires. They are going to be based on the Niger River, the largest river in West Africa, and the Sahel. And the Sahel is a great grassland that goes across Western and and Central Africa. This is essentially why horses are going to be way more important. The Sahel is this great grassland. It's a giant highway. Um, farmers can use it. They could plop, plop down their farms. Um, we're going to have slave labor working a lot of this. But we're also going to... There's not the physical geographic limitations. And so empires can spread. So we start with Ghana, and Ghana is an 
so important in the image of an independent Africa that the first um, independent state in Africa from the Europeans will call itself Ghana, even though modern Ghana is nowhere near where ancient Ghana was. So it's more about the idea of an independent, successful uh, heritage. Ghana's going to last for 400 years, from 800 to 1250. It's going to be based on gold and salt, as we talked about. They are going to be the ones who bring in Islam. And it's not going to be violent. They bring them in to run, help them run their kingdom better. Islam represented education, power, and technology. And by making those connections to North Africa, notice Ghana starts, rises in the 800s. It's, it's 100 years after the Arabs have conquered North Africa. So all of that knowledge, technology, bureaucracy, people is floating across the Sahara into Africa. And Ghanese kings aren't stupid. They're going to say, hey, these guys know what they're doing. They know how to run an empire. I'm going to bring them in. And we're going to convert Ghana from a typical West African chiefdom kingdom into a Islamic kingdom with power and authority. Now it ends, it's very successful, it continues, it ends, it is smashed by the North Africans. It is smashed by the Amoravids out of Morocco and Spain. And so it ends in blood and fire. And part of, and you can understand the reason. The reason is, is that Ghana controlled the trade routes. They were very successful. They built up. And they controlled the trade routes. Well, if you control the trade routes, you can then negotiate a better price for your goods. It's way easier. You get competition gets you way more, a way lower price. So the Amoravids go, well, I don't want to pay that price. And what they did was suit up, get an army, cross the Sahara, smash Ghana, break it into pieces... And then you can negotiate with all those little pieces and get a much, much lower price. The, the, the North African, Moroccan, Spanish don't stay. They leave, but the idea was they broke up the Ghanese monopoly. And this is going to be what it will eventually be absorbed by is one of those successor states called Mali. Mali is also going to last 400 years. It is going to last from 1255 to 1650. 45, Mali is spelled M-A-L-I. Um, Ghana, by the way, was spelled G-H-A-N-A. -A. Uh, what we have is trade with Islamic Spain. This is going to be um, the same as Ghana will do. We'll go across the Sahara, trade with Islamic Spain. But what Mali does is also invest in culture especially Islamic culture, Islamic higher learning, and they will build Timbuktu. Timbuktu is T-I-M-B-U-K-T-U as an African university, as an Islamic center. Now, there are universities in North Africa earlier, but I think Timbuktu is the first sub-Saharan African university. 
I could be totally wrong. There could totally be one in East Africa. And um, my apologies if that's true. But it's important that Timbuktu becomes this center of African Islamic learning. It's going to train generations of scholars. It's going to train generations of uh, imams. It's going to train generations of bureaucrats to run the government. And it's important that it is a combination of African and Islamic. It's not one or the other. The most famous of the kings that come out of Mali is Mansa Musa, M-A-N-S-A, Musa, M-U-S-A. Um, he is famous for the, the Hajj. He's famous for his wealth. He is, there is an argument to be made that he is the wealthiest man who ever lived. He, his Hajj carried with it so much money Think of Prince Ali and Aladdin, where he's on elephants and he's got 10,000 men blowing horns and he's throwing gold and the peasants love him and they're picking up the gold. And his Hajj, which is the Islamic pilgrimage to Mecca. So he goes across Africa to do this. He goes across the, the African world and the Islamic world to do this is the stuff of legend. In fact, it's a bubble. It's an economic bubble of inflation going through the medieval world. You could actually watch uh, economist historians have actually charted his movement through the Islamic world because of the effect it had on prices. And you say, how is that possible? Well, it's, it's easy. He had so much money. He had so much wealth. He'd walk into the town and say, look, we need, we need beds. And the hotel would say, well, we don't have any. We're full. You know, we charge $100 a night. We're full. And he says, okay, how about I pay you $5,000 a night? Are any of those rooms available? Yes, all of them are available. And you'll kick out all the people, you'll put him in, and then what happens is, now you've made that money. $5,000 per room. So if you want something, you're going to go off and spend it at a much higher rate. Right? Because you're going to go and say, uh, I want X, I want chicken nuggets. Uh, well, you know, we could get you some chicken nuggets, it's going to be like 5 bucks. How about I give you 15 bucks and you give it to me now? And so the money that comes pouring out of Mansa Musa's Hajj, which is H-A-J-J, is just the stuff of legend. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that it's equivalent to the Queen of Sheba, which is in the Old Testament, going from East Africa to go see Solomon in Palestine. She is the same thing. She is a rich queen on her way, bringing thousands of people with her. She'll bring a form of Judaism back to East Africa, which will freak out Israelis in the 1970s when a bunch of uh, black Jews start showing up, escaping civil war, and they're going to show up and they're going to go, hey, we're Jews, we're allowed to come back. And there's a, no, 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 you're not. 
you're not Jews. There's two kinds of Jews. There's white Jews and there's brown Jews. We don't have any black Jews. And they say, well, have you read your Torah? And they go, of course we've read our Torah. We're Jews. We're in Israel. We're the most Torah people around. He goes, well, you see the Queen of Sheba part? And they're like, yeah, it's a nice story about how Solomon is so wise that a queen out of Africa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And here was a story, and a nice story. It shows how awesome Solomon is. But it turns out to be partly history because the Queen of Sheba, whether she's real or not, doesn't matter. There is these connections between Palestine and Africa through Egypt. And Judaism translated up the, up the Nile River to Africa and created a group of Jews, African Jews. Now here's, now you, now here's the part that will blow your mind. Since the African Jews, the Ethiopian Jews, as they're called, were cut off from Palestine by the Islamic conquest, and then by colonization and colonialism, they were actually old school Jews. They were actually better Jews than than the European Jews. Jews in Israel because they stuck to the they didn't have all the innovations they didn't have all the changes they didn't have all the Christianity slash Europeanism slash humanism that will um, become part of Judaism in the Middle Ages they don't have it they're not connected and so Ethiopian Jews were actually Older school Jews. Their Judaism was actually a older version than what Israelis in 1975 were doing. And so here's one of those things where here's a story from the ancient world that turns out to be at least partly history and it comes smacking the modern world in the face. And nobody was prepared for it. Nobody really expected it to happen. So there's a church uh, in Ethiopia that claims to have the um, Ark of the Covenant. And maybe some people take it seriously, but most people go, yeah, 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 whatever. Because no one's allowed to see it. And you go, all right, whatever. Mm-hmm. But what if it really does have the Ark of the Covenant? That would be an ancient story, the Ark of the Covenant kind of smacking you in the face. I mean, like, oh my God. It would blow your mind. So Mansa Musa is a powerful king, a wealthy king, and a respected one, and part of the Islamic world. That's the important part about this. That West Africa, even though it is, what, 3,000, 4,000 miles away from Mecca, Two, three thousand miles easy is still part of the same cultural universe and a respected part of it. Now, this was a decentralized empire, a lot of local autonomy, 
and it had a um, caste system, and it had a conscript army, which was 90% infantry. This put it at a disadvantage against the kingdom that will come next. And the kingdom that will come next is, and I may be pronouncing it completely wrong, but I'll pronounce it as I see it, Songhai, Songhai, the empire, from 1464 to 1592. So that's 130 years. Um, in some ways it is, it is not the longest lasting one, but in some ways it's most successful. It has the most urban centers. It's the most urban-based empire. Um, it has a cavalry army, which allows it to dominate the Sahel. Uh, it conquers Mali. It's one of those parts of Mali, these decentralized parts that kind of breaks away, creates its own army, its own government, its own economy, and then absorbed the, the mother kingdom of Mali. Again, its leaders convert to Islam. Uh, Islam Islamic merchants are going to uh, be an important part of the urban centers. So are the mosques. So are these cultural connections to North Africa. And Songhai will suffer the same fate as Ghana. They got too powerful. And in the Moroccan gunpowder troops marched across the... Sahara and smashed them, broke up their empire, and again went back to a decentralized system that they could, that Morocco, Spain could exploit. But at this point in Spain, in 1492, Spain conquers the last of the Islamic kingdoms of Granada, and in 1492 it becomes a Catholic-centered country, or unified country, I should say. It was Catholic-centered for a while, but unified country. And that connection of Africa to Spain, to Europe, is cut off. What are our effects? The effects are that Islam will spread in Eastern and Western Africa and tie Eastern Afri Western Africa to larger systems. But even before Islam, there was Christianity, especially in East Africa. There was the Roman world. So Africa has always been connected. Sub-Saharan Africa, through the Nile and across the Sahara, to North Africa, from North Africa to these larger systems. The African kingdoms have wealth, trade, education, urbanization. They have cities, big cities, uh, Gao, G-A-O, Timbuktu and Meiro. These are major uh, cultural centers by any stretch of the imagination. They are um, not Rome in size, not Baghdad in size, but again, East and West Africa are not the center of large uh, trade networks. They're at the periphery. They're at the ends of them. They're connected, but they are at the ends, which allows them to be disrupted by uh, natural and human forces. Arabic and European slavery affected the coasts, but not the kingdoms. But African kingdoms had slavery. Um, what does this mean? It means that, one, Africa had slavery within Africa. And the reason why is fairly simple. 
Africa is a massive land. On the maps, it looks way smaller than it actually is. The Mercator map makes Africa look smaller than it is. Africa is much bigger. It has lots of land, but not enough people in it. So you could own a million acres of land, it, but it doesn't matter if you have no one to work it. And so slavery was a major part of the African economy, just like it is in the Roman world, just like it is basically everywhere else. In a pre-industrial world, you needed labor, so you took it. So when Arabs and Europeans show up, they don't need to conquer anybody. They don't need to beat people up. Europeans don't need to go into Africa to get slaves. They show up on the coast, go to a merchant. Hey, um, I see you sell people. Can you sell some people to us? And those guys say, how much you got? Oh, well, we got this, and we got this, and we got this. Okay. And that was it. The systems were already in place. So those systems start at the coast and go inward. And they continue as people at the coast continue to get money, which they then turn into a military advantage. Because here's the thing. So I just gave a bunch of money. I gave $10,000 for a whole bunch of slaves. That merchant turns to me and goes, uh, how about I buy a thousand guns from you and some cannon? And I say, sure, no problem. He hands me back the money. I give him guns. And I say, okay, next month or in six months, I, I want to come back. I want to get another uh, couple boatloads of slaves. And he says, no problem. We have a relationship. I don't need to conquer anything. And the the peoples on the coast now have a military advantage and they could go into the interior and beat up other peoples and bring them back to the coast and then sell them to either the Arabs or to the Europeans. And in this way, some 20 million people, give or take, over a thousand years will be exported as labor out of Africa. Now, that hurts the African economy. That hurts African development because you're losing 20 million people, mostly men, mostly men of prime working age who no longer can give any labor to their home state, their home kingdom, their home country. They will enrich the new world. They will enrich South America, Brazil, the Caribbean, and the American South. They will become major components in Arab armies. And Arab trade, especially Eastern trade. They will enrich others, not themselves since they're slaves, and not their home territory because they'll be exported out of it. So that will actually hurt African cultural, economic, political development when you take that many people out. Because not only are you taking those, those people out, you're taking all of their ancestors, all the children they'll ever have, all the grandchildren, all the great-grandchildren. But 
where you have strong kingdoms, Ethiopia, Ghana, you don't have slavery. Strong kingdoms were able to monopolize their own people. The kingdom of Mali didn't suffer Europeans taking slaves from them. And this, we see this. We see this in India. We see this in China. Where there is a strong kingdom, it is very difficult to extract people as forced labor. And so while your life in Mali might not have been great because the, the because Mali came to your, your village, came to your town, conquered you, and now you pay tribute to Mansa Musa or one of the other kings, that king is also protecting you from the slave traders who would have sold you to the Europeans and to Brazil. And so there's this complex system going on of protection and, and slavery and assimilation and exportation and exploitation as well. African kingdoms grew up connected to European and Middle Eastern world. They were connected to the economy, to the religion, and to the cultures. They are not behind in any sense of the word. And that is the part that's missed because when Europeans go in the 1800s, they're coming from an industrialized world. They're coming from a different world. And so we get Joseph Conrad's The Heart of Darkness. We get um, Livingston bringing civilization to the savages. We get uh, Stanley. And we get, we get the explorations of Africa, the deepest, darkest Africa, the unknown continent. The idea that it's a savage world, that it's not civilized. When in fact, it is as old, as civilized, as connected as any of the other ones are, as anyone else in this period is. West Africa, East Africa, on the Sahara, on the Nile. We're, we're parts of the world trade system. Um, even Chinese explorers during the Ming Dynasty will end up in East Africa negotiating with, creating trade ties with African kings. So, so Africa is militarily important. It's economically important. It's culturally important. It's at the end of these connections, but it is, but those connections are real. Thank you.